Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Oh, planning permission. That that phrase, that those two words may put shivers down your spine, right? They may make you just feel irritated at the length, at the time, at the dealing with the council and how annoying they are in, in most aspects, let's be honest. But today we have a planner, a chartered town planner and a planning consultant, John McDermott, on the show. You may recognise him from Facebook. He's quite active in a few different groups. Now, we're talking everything planning. You know, what is it? Why do we have it? How can you work well with planners? Why do you need a planning consultant? The different levels of planning, the costs and the risks associated with it. His biggest project, 242 units in a tower block, I believe. But then also talking about converting an old royal uh, fort building into flats in a museum. So we kind of talk about some real life examples, but we also look at planning gain slash uplift uh, and how you, when you're looking for land or looking at a building, you know, from sitting at your computer and, and doing your research, you can then assess, you know, how likely is this to get approved and what could we potentially use it for? I'm going through planning at the moment, or I'm in the process of you know, working out which planning consultant, etc., to use and what to do. So this has been very, very useful for me. Uh, and we also touch on some of the differences uh, in England and Wales, which may be helpful. If you haven't already, please leave a review. So many of you listen to this and don't leave a review. It's all I ask. Please leave a review. Thank you. Bye. John, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So you are the first planning consultant i believe is is your title to to come on the tej talks podcast i think i've had a lot of people who you know you would work with like developers uh property investors property developers etc but i haven't actually had someone who can really really talk us through the dark art or what looks like a dark art of planning before we get into like all my questions about planning could you just like maybe tell us a bit about yourself yeah sure so um you're right, I am a planning consultant. Um, I'm a chartered town planner. That means I've, I've done my time, as I describe it. Currently takes about seven years if you've got the right degrees, and you need two of them, to become a chartered town planner. Um, and I've been doing it for about 18 years now. I'm showing my age, <laughs> essentially. I'm showing the fact that planning is very, very bad for you pretty much all the time. But I'm, but I absolutely love what I do. Um, it, it's one of those areas where, in reality, the law is lovely and complicated, lovely and grey, and it's a really good area for people who want to get into the building industry but have a penchant for law and regulation uh, to get into. Hmm. And then, what's the difference between like a planning consultant and a chartered town planner? So a planning consult, anyone can call themselves a planning consultant, okay? Um, planning consultant isn't a protected title like architect or solicitor. Chartered town planner is a protected title. A chartered town planner um, is a person who has been through all of the regulatory framework um, with the Royal Town Planning Institute, has passed um, their assessment of professional competence is bonded by the Town Planning Institute, which which means that uh, we've signed up to their professional code of conduct and is a um, and is carries all the necessary education qualifications and insurances in order to present themselves as a point of authority uh, in the planning world. I see. So, I, so it's not a separate thing to planning. It's it's part of planning. Um, it is. It, it is the professional body for town planners. Ah, okay, got you. Fine. And you know this this is probably a question that a lot of people ask with frustration, but it's one I I guess I'm asking from like a for people who have no idea about planning permission in this whole world. Why do we have, like, planning permission? Why, why do we need planning permission to exist? Um, good question. We have planning permission 
because of a variety of different pressures that were put on our country uh, in the early 1900s. Very, very simply, we had competing land uses. We had developers not doing what developers should be doing. So uh, unfortunately, in our country, it is always the case that the few spoil the game for the many. So the, uh, the few developers who didn't want to build in central London were causing uh, central London to expand at a, an exorbitant rate. Uh, we had uncontrolled development. And then we had a few people showing us how it could be done. So the visionaries, um, the, the Capri family, um, amongst other people, uh, showing us how planning could be done, how you could set out towns and cities on health and social benefit grounds. And then we had the war. We had the um, Second World War, which uh, displaced 1.5 million people out of central London. All of those pressures told the government of the time um, it had to be a case of this far no further. They couldn't trust the development community that existed at the time to rebuild the houses where they needed to be rebuilt. They also couldn't trust that the development community would put people before profit, essentially. Uh, you had a lot of um, early industrialists building towns around their factories, subjecting people to pollution. And that didn't work. So you had all of these pressures. And the final breaking point was the Town and Country Planning Act 1947, which nationalised development land. That was the enough is enough moment and said, if you want to develop your own land, you need planning permission for it. Hmm. I did not know that. That was very interesting. So then, you know, the, the fast forward to today and we have the, the whole world of planning and there's many, many things within it. So... Could you, before, before I kind of delve into like aspects of it, like permitted development and normal planning and all this stuff, could you give us an overview of, you know, what sort of, I guess, planning options are available to people? What different, like what, what does the world of planning look like now tangibly for a property investor or developer? Um, <laughs> good question. Today's planning world is either seen as, a, as, an, as an opportunistic paradise or a minefield field and it depends on the council and it depends on the investor so if the investor has focused their attention on um, following policy compliance strategies following the rules um, utilizing the local plan to their best endeavors then it's an opportunistic paradise there are planning authorities that will welcome that type of person with open arms if on the other hand the investor is seeking to push or rush in where angels fail to tread. So, you know, has found a bit of greenbelt land and has thought, mm, yes, that looks excellent. I'll build some houses on it. Then planning is a minefield. And it's a minefield of regulation and rules that some investors don't like. So the planning system today is very much geared on what investors want and need to come out of the system and and how they're they're approaching it mm, okay and so i guess a common scenario that like a lot of my listeners will have is they're thinking you know i've done some buy to let done some hmos i want to i want to build i want to get some mud get some grass and make something on it so let's say i'm 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 on right move i'm doing i'm just looking for land using nimbus using whatever tools from a sort of planning perspective when i'm looking for land like how like what's the process you know like how do i know from just looking at land and from doing my research that you know what we may get planning on this what what process should i follow okay so this kind of covers the two of my sort of safety rules as it were uh, that I that I apply to every planning process. The first is, is what I'm doing national planning policy framework compliant? So let me explain that. We have the national planning policy framework. It's a very short series of rules. And, and as a rule book, it's incredibly easy to read. They uh, includes rules on development in the countryside, development on brownfield land, development in employment areas. It's It's really quite detailed. Uh, for something that 
is only 69 pages long. So the reality is that any human being can look at the MPPF and make a judgment as to whether or not they're doing something that's that's acceptable in principle, i.e., is it NPPF compliant? So if you're looking at a, and I'll give you a couple of examples if I may, because learning by example is the best way of doing it. So if you're looking at a site that I saw the other day, which is brownfield land, it is it is an area of land that was previously developed upon. It was a station car park, and um, it is on the Brownfield Land Register. So it is on a, a document where the council has turned around and said, yep, we want you to do something with this. Please get on with it. Then you're doing something that's NPPF compliant. You're working with a piece of land that actually wants to be developed upon. If in the alternative, you're looking at a piece of land like I saw uh, about three to four weeks ago now, the world has changed so much in a week. Um, you have a piece of land that has been to auction that the auctioneer says uh, prime development land subject to planning. And it's in the home county. It's an obscenely cheap. And by obscenely cheap, I mean a guide price of £35,000. Yeah. In the home counties. Right. In a town, not in a green belt. You go through that and you'd look at it and go, OK, that's interesting. 35 grand. I can buy that for 35 grand. That's good. And then you apply the MPPF to it and you look at it a bit closer and you realize that it's actually a park. And by a park, I mean a park. It has swings on it and slides. And then the MPPF tells you, no, that's protected open space. The reason why it's £35,000 is because you can't build upon it the best sensors that we have for for judging whether or not you can do something are our eyes they're amazing pieces of kit well mine aren't because i have to wear glasses but most people eye people's eyes are amazing pieces of kit and you can tell reasonably quickly with a piece of land you know if it's built up if it's urban if it's been previously developed then the chances are the principle of development is acceptable if it's not been built on or if there's a children playing on it as a park, then it's probably unacceptable to go and take their swings away and put houses on it. Mm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's quite obvious sometimes and even something like the price, although you can get bargains, the price can often indicate something is, you know, something is not exactly seriously wrong yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, i've had that with land and it was like yep yeah, this is a protected nature reserve or i don't know something and i was like cool that's why it's five grand so <laughs> yeah. um you know so the planning process let's say I, i've done these obvious checks I'm, I'm kind of like okay i've bought land at you know a decent price i believe there is the potential for it to you know to be built on here what sort of steps now that I've I've done the obvious stuff that you kind of mentioned before, I've read the guide. What steps can I take before speaking to a planner to just really make sure that this could work? Is it like looking at local development plans or things like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the next two stages in my safety checks are: um, is it local plan compliant? So is it in an area where the council want you to develop? And that's just a case of checking it against the local plan. All local plans are published by each individual council. They're online. And that should give you a really good steer. They're color-coded, so you can just look up the area and go, right, okay, it's in a residential zone. I can build residential here, right? So that ticks that box. The next step is um, to understand where the site has been. Now, the history. Now, everyone can do this. It's really easy. And if you have access to services like Land Insight or Nimbus, or as I like to call it, Nimbus, um, because we don't use Land Insight, the, um, you can check the history inside of those systems. So you can actually um, drill through and understand what has happened to that site before you have touched it. If there's no history on it, great. If there's history that says they're not going to allow housing in a million years, you know what's going on. 
if there's history that says, and I see this a lot, that there's lapsed planning permission for eight to ten houses on it, happy days. Let's go and grab at that lapsed planning permission and get that back into life. Because that is telling you what the council want to do with the land. Hmm. Okay, and so do you think a tool like Nimbus or other other tools are available? Uh, are you know is a good investment for someone who's seriously wanting to you know use planning to to build or to get planning gain from? I think these aggregator tools, and you're right, many other tools are available. We must always do that BBC Two thing, mustn't we? Um, but these aggregator tools are absolutely great. Um, I wish when I was a planning assistant back at council many, many years ago that we had had these aggregator tools. Um, we, you know, I wish councils had them now because it would make their lives easier. But um, yes, absolutely. If, you, if you're serious about doing land deals or serious about knowing what you can do on a site, then grab out one of these aggregator tools. They're a great investment. Hmm. Okay, so we've done the next sort of two steps. Where, you know, great. It's it has had planning. It hasn't had planning before, but it is in you know potentially the local development plan, or at least we've got an inkling that it's you know it, everything seems okay. At this stage, is it like how 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 could it work? Now, should we go to an architect and say, "Hello, I've got this land. It's I reckon it's three houses. What do you reckon? Here's the measurements. Can you draw it up?" And then then speak to a planner or do we go for a pre-applicate like what's next so this is where certainly i and architects start to disagree with each other so i'm going to be brutally open and honest here it's a planning application not a building regulations application so i would always say the next person you want to speak to is a planning consultant and ask that planning consultant for a uh, assessment on what can be granted planning permission on that site all right i would always go there first i'm a planner i'm gonna say that aren't i but from experience um, when i see clients do the reverse and then you go before the planners you always find that the planners start nibbling away at what's been done um, you always find that you know it's a little bit too high or a little bit too big or or things are going wrong on the site or something hasn't been thought about whereas if you go I find if you go planner first and then you give that brief to the architect that's when essentially the built the the professionals that you should have around you are working in the correct order the planner is leading the application uh, the architect is drawing what the planner needs in order to support the application then the application goes before the planners at the council and they then make a judgment on whether or not your planner has got it right on the basis that both planners are actually speaking the same language mm, that makes sense okay and you know in terms of so let's say we're at this stage where we've gone to a planner we've gone to you and said right john here, here's sort of my idea here's what you know I want to build you come back and say here's what you maybe could build what what are you as a planner then doing to get this approved like what is your process what are the things you have to do to get it from here's an idea to here's your planning approval granted right so we we ideally we make the application uh, we act as your agent. That means we can then interact on your behalf with the council. So if the council comes back and says, we want this, we can question them and say, well, why do you need it? Uh, I've, I've had a recent case where the council have said, we want a flood risk assessment. And I've gone unchecked and said, uh, you don't need one. No, we do, they said. Uh, no, you really don't. It's flood risk zone one, zero risk. And this is what the national guide says about when you need a flood risk assessment. So do you want to think about this one again? And they came, then came back and said, you're right, we don't need a flood risk assessment. Um, any chance we could have a quick statement from you on drainage instead? Yeah, okay, that's fine. But that has just saved the client about £3,000. And, and that's what the planner should be doing. The planner should be interacting with the council to guide the application through. Because if that's what the planner is doing to guide the application through, then the application comes at the back door with an approval. 
and and everyone is happy it we find it goes differently wrong um, when an, a planner is not the agent on application when we're brought in later because we can't have that level of interaction i always say to my clients um, it is easier for me to fix a problem before a problem happens it is much harder for me to fix a problem after it's occurred yeah and you know when it comes to like so when engaging a planner from what I, what I understand planners who are based in wherever can you know do an application wherever how mm-hmm. how does that work when what you were saying before some councils are are um insert word here and some councils are a lot lot better and easier to work with um how how does it work like you know if, if, if i said to you i've got an application in cumbria and you were based in southampton how like how does is it always better to get a local planner who kind of knows the planning department maybe and knows the area or that that used to be the case it's not anymore um the a good planner will learn the authority. So they will look at the authority's uh, approval behavior. They might tune in to the committee, uh, which is all streamed online now via Skype and other services are available. Um, But it's all streamed online. So they might watch a planning committee go through. But a good planner, and we do this all the time, learns the authority in which they're about to enter and understands what that authority is like so that they're getting on the ground knowledge which is current the other thing about the the sort of old adage a local planner is better um, is that most planning authorities turn around staff at a really frightening rate at the moment Um, if you were to put in a planning application in Guildford and then a couple of years later, put a planning application in Woking, which is an adjoining authority, you may very well have the planner that you first saw in Guildford because they cycle their all, they cycle their staff. In order to maintain staffing levels in Surrey, the, the planners in Surrey cycle around all the Surrey authorities. Um, but what that means is you're getting a, a, an almost never-ending refresh of staff coming through the system Mm. and then i was going to ask which leads on nicely from that you know is is your job and is the whole planning game i guess we call it is it relationship focused or is it less so now and is it purely focused on the product that you're delivering it's it's a little bit of both so a good planner will play the game so I, I love this quote by Picasso, which is, learn the rules like a pro, break them like an artist. Yeah, planning is both a science and an art. The science in planning is to know the rules, the regulation, and how to play policy. So how to play that part of the game. As planning is policy-driven first, rules-driven first. Um, the art is how to play the public or how to play the planners at the council now that may very well be down to the individual planning strategy your your consultant is using there are uh, four planning strategies that i like to use and i'll use whichever one i i see fit to to get my client to the end game yeah so i'll set my team up in such a way that i'm going to try and win because if i don't set that up in the right way if i just smack a planning application in that I, I don't know what the end outcome I can't predict it whereas I like to be able to predict so um, the planner should be setting up the strategy to play the planning authority as the opposing team and, and utilizing that the other thing is a good planner will always use politicians to their best advantage so to give you an example, I've got an application going through in Plymouth at the moment where I used politicians first. So I didn't put it in front of the planners first. I put it in front of the local ward councillors. It's a particularly troubled building that uh, needs love and attention. We're willing to provide that love and attention, but um, we didn't want any trouble or strife through the planning process. So we put it in front of the politicians with a 
we will help you sort this building out message. And that filtered up and down the chain of command and the planning authority are being positively lovely about it because we've played the politician first. I like this. It's like strategies of war, but political kind of war with planning. I like this. This is very interesting. It but, is. Mm. It is effectively levels of manoeuvring mm, mm. Um, and, and setting yourself in such a way that you're going to win the game. You're not going to lose the game. Yeah. And uh, planning, you know, is often, I think when the property investors and developers talk about it, they're like, yeah, we'll put a planning app in, we'll give it six months to come back, which, I mean, most of the time it's sort of a joke, but I think most of the time we all believe it's going to take that long, if not more, obviously, depending on what the, the application's for. Why in, you know, a housing crisis and housing shortage do planners take forever to to do anything? Um. Okay, this is a really good time to know your opponent. Um, the local authority planner is either uh, a very experienced individual coming to the end of their career, uh, an individual with a, a decent amount of experience that's looking for their next promotion, or someone just out of school. And and we are we do have a national crisis in terms of planning professionals. Planning uh, is a uh, profession that has a national apprenticeship attached to it. The government is paying one of my members of staff right now to do a planning master's degree at London South Bank University, and they are paying £27,000 towards his degree because there is a national shortage. Um, the... So know your opponent, planners are massively overworked and have either very little experience, a great deal of experience where they're looking to retire, or are in that middle ground where they're looking for a promotion. The planners with very little experience will always err on the side of caution. They'll determine applications very quickly within the eight weeks they want to impress, but they'll normally err on the side of a refusal, which sends you into an appeal. A... A medium experienced planner won't really take much risks. Um, they want to get their next promotion or they'll want to move to another authority. So they'll potter through work and they might go over time and you'll get extensions of time, but that's a 12 weeker, so it's okay. The highly experienced planners are at the top, very top of their game, um, and they will the ones that take the most time about planning applications typically. They'll interrogate every finer detail to make sure it's absolutely perfect. They're also all governed by the personality at the top. So a head of service that rules with an iron fist, as it were, um, to use that analogy, will, will have a very direct approach with their planners. Whereas a very inconsistent authority may have very weak leadership at the top, and that will um, result in gross inconsistencies between individual planning officers. So it all does come down to that personality. Where there is a housing crisis, of course, they should all be getting on with it. However, it is a case. The um, it is a case that the um, planning authorities have a very difficult job to do. And that job can be forestalled by the public, by councillors, by bad decision making. Hmm. And, you know, when it comes to, like, a few of the terms you mentioned before, it'd be good to just go through them, actually. I just realised for people who aren't familiar. So I think you said brownfield and greenfield. So brownfield is has been developed on so is is rife for more what is greenfield and are there any other types of field in your terminology that we should know about right so brownfield land is exactly as you suggest previously developed land and it's the generic term for previously developed land greenfield land or greenfield is the generic term for not previously developed land okay um, the two other terms that need to be coupled with that are the ideas of open countryside and green belt. Open countryside is areas outside of the settlement boundary where 
um, the principle of development is unacceptable unless you can demonstrate you're meeting one of the five exemptable criteria in power 79 of the MPPF. Um, green belt land is even more unacceptable and is only acceptable where you can meet one of the seven criteria in para 145 of the NPPF. So the, the difference between the two, between Brownfield and essentially Greenfield, is the principle of development. Principle of development is always acceptable subject to other material considerations in Brown. The principle of development is always unacceptable subject to other material development considerations on greenfield land um, and then beyond that you have a whole variety of terms inside planning law itself which um, I'm sure at some point in time someone will write a planning dictionary for because there really does need to be one uh, but um, we probably don't have time to go through all of them today <laughs> and um when it comes to planning, I know you kind of mentioned before, if something, you know, let's say we've got some land and it and it's had lapsed planning permission, so it's run out for, you know, X many houses. What if, my friend recently came to me and said, I'm looking at this land, it's at auction, it's had planning, you know, previously rejected, is it a no-go? And I said, look, I, this is not my area of expertise, but just because one person was rejected or one planner was rejected doesn't mean that a better planner or different planner can't beat it. Is that the case? Like, what kind of things do you commonly overcome where people are like, oh, well, it's failed once, so it's dead? So it is, right, let's just deal with this, because actually it's a really important point in law. Once a planning authority has refused planning permission for something, that is the decision. It can only, that decision can over, only be overwritten in two circumstances, well, three um, the first is you submit an appeal and you demonstrate that the reasons for refusal are not correct, right? So that it should have been approved in the first instance. So that, that, that would be the first sort of starting point is, are we appealing this? Are the reasons for refusal so stupid that actually we have to send it before an inspector? Um, the second circumstance is that we can overcome the reasons for refusal by modification. And, and I see applications where the sole reason for refusal is you managed to fail to sign a Section 106 agreement. Well, okay, that's pretty easy. Should we go and grab a Section 106 agreement and get it signed? You know, that it can be as stupid as that. Um, I've got one going to appeal at the moment where the council didn't like the fact that the bin store was a square meter too small well that's going before the inspector because you, know, you would generally appeal that type of thing that's just council stupidity um, the third circumstance is if the decision is so legally incorrect that it must be judicially reviewed and that is where the barristers take over and send it before the high court uh, but in my experience it, it, it's one of the first two we can either overcome the reason for refusal by doing something or we can try and challenge the reason for refusal directly by taking it before the inspector and seeking an appeal mm, okay that makes sense do you have any case studies of actually before we go into the case study you know people mm. talk a lot about planning gain or planning uplift and I'm sure, i think there's a difference between the two i'll let you clarify what like you know is this like I guess, a feasible strategy that you see people doing day in, day out, where they buy land or buy, you know, a, a property of some type, get planning on it and then sell it on for, you know, five times what they bought it for? Um, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. So we do see speculative developers do this all the time. They typically use the outline application mode because it's the cheapest mode for them to access. Okay, it requires the least amount of information, and because of that, it is uh, most cost-effective for them. We typically see it on large fields, normally in an area where the council has failed to meet its five-year housing land supply, uh, or failed its housing delivery test, as it's now called. The 
that type of planning uplift and planning uplift, planning gain, essentially two sides of the same coin. But that type of planning uplift, um, so that you can uh, leverage the planning application value, um, when it actually comes to market, typically the aspirations of the vendor tend to be completely out of kilter with what the site can actually deliver. So it's not normally a five times increase. It, it's, it needs to be very carefully worked out so that someone can actually build what you've got planning permission for. We also see uh, vendors trying to improve the value of property by a full application and then coupling that with with the sale to say, we're selling you this house as it is now, but you can do this and we've got the planning permission for you. There you see a much lower level of uplift um, because you have to factor in the, the cost of actually doing the work itself. But that does certainly work in the home counties in, in areas of Greenbelt like Surrey or Sussex or Kent, where the values um, of older stock are depressed. But actually, if you get them into the next type of house, you turn a two bed into a three bed, then there is a marked improvement there that that, that, that does make it worthwhile. Hmm. And, you know, am I right in saying that, you know, what you're saying there is obviously there's a, a difference in cost, maybe even a, a big difference from full planning and outline. Is it, is it kind of, am I right in saying that you could buy a land or get an option on it or, you know, get an option on something and you could spend sort of multiple thousands of pounds in planning for it to then get rejected and then for you to be like, oops, next. Um, if your planning consultants advised you correctly, you should never be there. Right. And I think this is where I'm going to sort of hang my hat on ethics a little bit. The difference between the way we do stuff and the way other, let's use the broader term, planning consultants do things, is that we as a firm made the decision a long time ago that we were always going to safety check what we were putting into the system. Because if you put poor quality materials into any system, you're going to get poor quality results. If you put good quality materials into your into your building pipeline, you're going to get good quality results. So we always do a safety check. Now, not I would have to say, because I've seen it, not everyone in the building industry does that same safety check. Yeah. Not everyone stops at the, at, right at the start and says, right, does this make sense? That's kind of why we're right 90% of the time, because we do that safety check and we put through the stuff that we think we can do, whereas others don't. But yes, you're absolutely right in your assertion that you could spend a large amount of money with a planning consultant, with an architect. And if those initial checks haven't been done, you're doing it essentially at risk. And the the planning risk is you're going to get a refusal and the refusal turns into a, a, a 20, 30, 40,000 pound hole. Going, I guess going back to the start where we spoke about process. So you obviously you've got, so you've got different levels of planning. Before I ask the question, actually, could you talk us through that? So you have outline, pre-app and full planning or is it, how does it, what are the main ways of getting planning? Okay, so pre-app, let's deal with that first, is not a planning application. It's the opinion of the council. Okay, so if you want a bit of assurance, you would get pre-app first. All right. Onwards from that. And there are different levels of planning. But if you're talking about a bit of land in the middle of somewhere that hasn't been built on and you're talking more than 10 houses, there are two routes available to you. There's the outline planning application route and the full planning application route. There are big differences in terms of cost and there are big differences in terms of outcome. So 
here's a simple equation. Outline plus the reserve matters equals full. So you make an outline application first as a speculative investor. You then have to make another application, a reserve matters application, second. And one plus the other equals a full consent. Okay. The alternative to that is the full planning application process, which is a one consent solution. It is much easier to value a site based on a single consent. And much easier to get planning gain based on a single consent, but it is much more. It is initially much more expensive to do so. The common misconception is that planning it full planning is more expensive than outline plus reserve matters. It's not. It's actually the reverse. The outline application is cheap and easy to access. Site plan, block plan, access drawing and a fee. £462 per 0.1 of a hectare, which is a thousand square metres. The reserve matters application deals with everything you've left behind. And normally most people leave a lot behind layout, appearance, landscaping and scale are the common ones. That will require an architect and is effectively a full planning application in its own right. And you pay the full planning fee at £462 per dwelling. The council always get the full fee. Right. So. And it's two applications, so it's two lumps of time, which for a major is two lumps of 13 weeks. The full application, you only do one lump of 13 weeks. You do one application fee, £462 per dwelling, and one lump of architect's drawings that in reality you probably could have done right at the start. But most speculators like the outline route because it's cheaper for them. Hmm. Is it the case that if you engage a good planning consultant from day one or day two, that you shouldn't need to do outline, pre-app, any of that, you should just be able to go for a full planning as long as they've safety checked it and you, you know what I mean? As, like if you... as long as, as, long as is, the consultant is, is applying the appropriate level of diligence to your site, and is advising you appropriately and is not just telling you that they're going to apply for planning permission. Yeah, they're, they're saying we're going to apply for planning permission and we think we can get it because of this, 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 this and this. So they're demonstrating to you that actually they're, that they've given it some good thought and they're running down a line because of some really well worked reasons. Then you should rest assured that that planning consultant has done their homework and uh, you would be covered not only by their professional indemnity insurance, but by the RTPI code, yeah, if they're chartered. Um, if the planning consultant is uncertain, then they should be engaging with the council in some way, either by a speculative first application, uh, which is sometimes what we do. We, we do what are called cycling applications, where we put in our first application to test the water with the council. We do that with councils with very poor pre-app performance or uh, they do they use the pre-application process where they need council buy-in right away where they need the council on the team as it were and and all playing for the same side right from the offset the example i gave down in, in plymouth is a good example of that where, where where that's exactly what we've done we've involved councillors and then we've involved planners to get everyone on the same team so that when the application goes in as it now has uh, everyone is kicking the ball in the right direction. Mm, okay, that makes sense. And, you know, when it comes to, like, the costs and time frames, so you've mentioned some of the costs of, like, the council fees, but, I mean, let's just say, let's say, again, some land, and we want to build, let's just say, five houses. And, again, obviously, it depends on lots of things, but roughly... What would like a planning consultant cost? What would the council cost? What would any extra surveys or fee like, you know, all in roughly again, you know, I'm sure it varies a lot. What sort of costs are we talking about and timeframes 
so people who are thinking about developing can get a real insight into the like actually sure. what it's like so in in total for scratch land say in the home counties because again it varies area to area um in terms of uh architects fees and survey fees because different architects charge different rates different planning consultants charge different rates and different survey companies charge different rates but as a guesstimate i would be saying it should be about fifteen thousand all in for a planning consultant decent architect all of the necessary surveys and for just green land you'd be looking at biodiversity um ecology uh maybe archaeology if you're near anything uh potentially old battlefieldy or roman um, which you do find a lot in the home counties to be fair um if you're up north you'll need a mine survey uh because there are a lot of mine workings it's same in cornwall to be fair uh flood risk assessment if you need a flood risk assessment done um and the planning application fee which would be 462 pounds per dwelling on a full matter i would not suggest putting something so small through an outline because actually it won't help you the outline provision will only raise more questions than it that it answers so it's better doing something so small on a full interesting okay so there is a fair amount of cost up front that for my knowledge can't be borrowed against like it could necessarily with you if you were just buying a property like a bridge so it's potentially cash or investors cash up front that you'd hope wouldn't be lost but there is still the possibility of there's things risk that, yeah yeah i mean to give you an idea of one that i'm working on which is my own personal development right now um again down in the city of plymouth i quite like plymouth as an area to be fair the um it's a conversion of an old care home to 17 dwellings and the planning fee for that is seven and a half thousand pounds. That's the planning fee to the council. The architect has been six and a half thousand. We've probably got an additional three thousand in surveys and reports because we need a drainage report done. We need an ecology report done and my time, which I'm not charging for. But if, if I was charging for it and if it was if it was just a, a a standard client come through the street that would be about three thousand pounds of my time so if we tot all that up it's three nine twelve plus an addition yeah that's about 20 grand damn and and obviously you you're very confident that it will be going through yes because we've had early discussions with the council um and the advice that we've received back from them is happy with this and any small niggles we'll deal with during the lifetime of the application a good planner does their homework. Yeah. Have you got any other case studies or, or interesting like problems you've had or maybe some huge uplift you've created or just some insight into how rewarding and or how challenging, you know, working with planning can be? Um, a, a few. So what kind of thing would you be interested in in, in, in Tej really? Because I've got quite a wide and varied case. <laughs> what do we do the... <laughs> the i don't know maybe the biggest uplift or the most rewarding one that you've done but then also the most challenging and difficult one you've done okay easy um 242 dwellings in a tower block that was the biggest and they're building it out right now so the story behind this was that this building had been derelict and on the portsmouth skyline for 15 years before my client finally decided to do something with it the client will remain nameless to protect the innocent or other um the uh building was ripe for a prior approval not in a flood risk zone not ground contamination no noise issue apart from a station directly opposite and had a 72 72 space car park attached to it the building converted very nicely to uh, micro units which would suit students and that and Portsmouth is a student town so it was effectively going to be used as a uh, a co-living like hall of residence style space with 242 little student pods in it all flats in their own right um, that was approved through prior approval uh, against my old authority which was both satisfying for me because 
um, it's always nice to get one. Yeah. It's always nice to get one up against your old authority, but at the same time, um, it brought that building back into life, and that was really quite special. To bring a build, there's nothing better than to bring a building back into life. Yeah, that's that's special. And the most challenging one is the one I'm dealing with right now in Wales. Uh, this beautiful building and if people want to see it then just google defensible barracks pembroke dock right the defensible barracks or pembroke dock. um so google that the it's a building that we're working on with investor partners it is a stunning 1948 built uh, 1848 victorian defensible barrack block on its own uh, casement defenses it was designed to take 26 or thereabouts welsh 26 pounder cannon designed designed to defend the dockyard there we're working with pembrokeshire county council and cadu who are the who are the um Welsh version of English heritage. The challenge for this building is it's both a scheduled ancient monument and grade two listed. It has been, I'm going to use the word manhandled by its previous owners. So there's a lot of degradation on the inside of the building that is disappointing. And we're working very hard with the Welsh government, but that is going to be a four-year process that's two years in planning that one's going to be and we've planned it for two years uh, because we know that's going to take a long time to get sorted out there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot of experts that need to be brought out of their closets and put into the field um, we need an ecologist on that site we've got a really good ecologist but we, we needed an ecologist because we've got bats we've got um uh, some of the rarest bats in the country in that building. We've got uh, a heritage, a Welsh heritage expert who's dealt with this type of building before, because in all honesty, this building is way above my pay grade. Yeah, uh, I I can do heritage, but as far as this is concerned, I wanted someone special who could come in and speak Welsh. Um, we're dealing with the locals and the local residents who have been watching what did they see as their castle be destroyed comprehensively over a course of years. Um, and we're working with them. We're working with the local council to bring this building back into life. The result will be, and I won't tell you the exact numbers because I don't know if the previous owners are listening and if they are, then I'm in trouble. Um, the, a number of flats, we want to put a museum in the building as a celebration of, of Welsh military history and a couple of other little minor uses, some some off live work space where, where we can't make flats work or where flats don't obviously work. But it's a building you walk around that you just discover new spaces. So the last time I was there, I went for a walk in the moat because it has a moat. It's dry moat, so I didn't have to, you know, swim. But I went for a walk in a moat and started to discover more spaces in this building that don't appear on the Royal Engineers plans, which is really, really annoying when that happens. <laughs> You've got a handle on a building and then more stuff appears. And, and then you've got more spaces to, to figure out what to do with. So th that's going to be the most challenging in my career by far. The most rewarding, because bringing a building back of that stature is going to be something that I think is going to be the pinnacle of my career, but at the same time, probably the most challenging. And what are you hoping to make it into? Uh, number of flats, museum, and uh, off some small, minor live-work office space. It is a stunning building. Like for anyone who hasn't seen it, it is it is honestly worth stopping and googling because there's a few. There's a few beautiful forts in, around that area in Wales, but this building is like 
it's it's epic like i'd love to own that that'd be amazing as like a, a one big castle to live in one big fort it's i mean let's face it if the coronavirus thing goes all wrong we know where we're escaping to well yeah you've got you've got your post-apocalyptic uh, fortress there so uh when it comes to wales i think we briefly spoke about it on on facebook you mentioned you're learning the Welsh planning laws. How does it differ in Wales? So I invest there and I know from what I can tell, there's no permitted development. There's a, a few differences I've noticed already. I don't do planning really apart from one I'm doing now. But what are the differences that you've learned about? Um, and does it make your life harder doing things in Wales? Uh, not necessarily. Um, Welsh planning and English planning haven't diverged too much. It's not like the Scottish system, which has diverged. Uh, they have a national planning policy for Wales, which is actually more up to date than our own national planning policy for England. It's on. We're on version four. They're on version 13. Um, so you, you get the idea. They have marched ahead. They're a bit more welcoming of certain forms of development. So, you know, in Monmouthshire, for example, they absolutely love a barn conversion. They've got policies to encourage you to do barn conversions. Whereas if you were to do the same thing in Surrey, they would look at you as if you'd grown a second head. So it, it does come down to reading the individual rules and just understanding them, learning them and making them work for you uh, in exactly the same way as you would do in the English system. Uh, they're controlled by the planning inspectorate. The planning inspectorate is also um, the, the sort of governing power, as it were, in, in the Principality of Wales. So it's a case of you report to the same uh, agency when everything goes wrong. They have their own little quirks, but as long as you're able to pivot with those differences... And as I said, learn the authority that you are working with, then you shouldn't have a problem. We've got a couple of applications going on at the moment. One I'm working on that's not in Pembrokeshire is in the county of Newport, and it's for nine new houses. Ah, interesting. And then I mentioned permitted development. Why don't Wales have it? Do you know? Um, very simply because they chose not to. Uh, the, when the when the when the when the nations split in devolution, everyone was left with the 1990 Town Country Planning Act and the 1995 General Permitted Development Order. Right, the new permitted development rights we've got here in England are because of amendments we've made to our own version of the General Permitted Development Order. The Welsh just chose not to make those amendments. Fair enough. And and what is permitted development actually for those who are not familiar with it? And and is it a really powerful tool? It it's insanely powerful if used correctly, right? Um, permitted development is a deemed planning permission granted unilaterally by a development order, namely the Town and Country Planning General Permitted Development Order, nineteen ninety five. The it is a planning permission. That's the important thing. Everyone forgets. It is a planning permission. It's just dealt with by a different way. And and then what makes it insanely powerful compared to, say, the other routes of planning? Um, it's important because it creates a fallback position. Yeah? The fallback position argument is very strong and has recently been reinforced in law in 2018. The solution it gives is if you can do it under permitted development anyway, or if you can do something very similar under permitted development, the council have to take that into consideration. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Cool. Well, we're now at the end of the podcast, John. Thank you so much. I think that's been very insightful and given us like a real view of planning from someone who is obviously doing it every day, every hour, every week, which is super, super useful. If people want to get hold of you to have a chat or to learn more, how should they how should they message you? Nip onto our website, tpexpert.org, all of my contact details are there. 
Amazing, John. That's Thank the easiest you. way of doing it. Otherwise, I'm having to spell it to you, and then it doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> Very true. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.